This conversation is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available at Fuller, a new way to learn and community this fall with youth, family, and culture cohort. This online cohort offers new students a youth-focused pathway within the Master of Divinity, MA in Theology, MA in Theology and Ministry, or MA in Intercultural Studies degree. Interact with Fuller's world-class faculty as part of a tight-knit cohort and benefit from tailored course sequences, dedicated cohort advisors, career planning support, and a commitment to whole life formation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash youth cohort. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of CBF's podcast. We also want to let you know that if you have authors, practitioners, or other people that you think we should feature on the podcast, be sure to drop me an email at ahale at cbf.net. That's A-H-A-L-E at cbf.net. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's conversation is Christy Pirafoy. She is a writer for various outlets, including Art House America, Grace Table, and In Touch Magazine. She's also the author of two books, Roots and Sky, and Placemaker. Christy, thank you for joining the conversation. Oh, thank you. It's so good to be with you. Now, before we start recording, we were navigating the fact that I am in the sweltering humidity of Louisiana, and you're enjoying no humidity in Pennsylvania, but that's not where life started for you, so walk us a little bit through your story. That's right. I've ended up here in Pennsylvania, and I'm as surprised as anyone about that. Uh, my, story, my story starts in Texas. So I'm a, a native Texan. My uh, father and his family have been there for generations. I grew up there. But this may be true for many people. It was my home, but I never really felt at home. I always felt a little bit cut off from that place as if I, I don't know, was meant to be somewhere else. So I think I've been searching for home honestly, ever since. Uh, it started by reading books and dreaming of other places. And then after I finished college, I left Texas. And I've lived in many, many places since then, always, I think, looking for that place that would feel like home. Hmm. I never feel at home in Texas. That's why I only go there to visit. <laughs> you know, it's a place I've kind of, I've, I've learned to see with new eyes since leaving. So I like to visit now. I like to take my children. I can I think remember and see the beauty of it more clearly now that I don't live there. But uh, you're right to bring up the humidity. I do not miss the humidity. And I don't know, it almost feels petty to say it, but it really was the, the climate, the weather that made me literally and I think metaphorically so uncomfortable in that place. So I love the four seasons we have here in uh, my little corner of Pennsylvania. And uh, it really is the rhythm of those four seasons that inspires me creatively and spiritually. And um, it's really the the story of, of everything I'm writing these days. Well, I mean, I never miss a moment to dump on our Texas listeners and friends. <laughs> Just being a part of the fellowship, it feels like, you know, one in every three of uh, people that are part of our, our, you know, CBF fellowship are part of uh, a Texas Baptist or came from Texas or, you know. Uh, 
They have big, healthy egos in Texas. I think they can take a little ribbing. <laughs> I've never heard such a thing about Texans, but uh, so, all right. So, you know, walk us through this. You, you leave Texas and uh, kind of enter into school and then uh, you get a, a PhD from the University of Chicago in, in English. That's right. Yeah, I was in Chicago for 10 years. Um, in graduate school, I took my time getting that PhD. I, uh, my husband and I had our first three uh, of our four kids while we were in Chicago. And Chicago, believe it or not, was the first place where I really felt at home. And it was nothing like the, like the place I'd grown up in. I mean, it couldn't have been more different from uh, my Texas childhood. But uh, there was something about the community I found in that city. We, um, you know, you live kind of elbow to elbow when you're in the city. And so I found community there. I loved uh, walking everywhere. Um, surprisingly, too, it's a place where I became a gardener. I started growing uh, flowers in window boxes, and then I joined up with a local community garden and shared a, a plot there with some neighbors and friends. And so those years in the city were, um, they weren't always easy. And I tell um uh, you know, I write a lot about the kind of the harder experiences of city life and those those years in my 20s and early 30s. But um, they were also just rich, satisfying years. So I have so much love for that city. And, uh, you know, I don't live in the city anymore. I live in an old farmhouse. My life, again, couldn't be any more different. And yet the funny thing to me, the really, I think, meaningful thing to me is that Chicago felt like home. And now this old farmhouse in Pennsylvania feels like home as well. And so I think home can, um, I don't know, it can come in many forms and many flavors. And that's definitely been true in my own life. So how does one go from Chicago to kind of the countryside of Pennsylvania? A whole lot of wilderness wandering is my answer. Um, you know, I finished the degree in Chicago. We had uh, three kids and my husband um, was offered a job in Florida. And uh, because my own work had kept us in Chicago all these years, it felt like it was the right time for our family to, to make a move um, uh, to, to pursue some work opportunities for him. So, so we did that. And, you know, we'd never lived in Florida, but we had been in, you know, the southern um, part of the U.S. before, and, and although it had been many years, and we thought, well, maybe, we thought maybe Florida could be home, maybe, uh, you know, we could raise our kids here, and um, it was exciting to have a house for the first time with a backyard, and I could just send the kids outside, uh, but Florida turned out to be um, a wilderness place for us, and especially for me. Um, again, I was back in that hot, human weather, but it wasn't just the weather, it was so much else. Um, something about the, the suburban neighborhood we found ourselves in didn't, um, didn't, uh, you know, we, it's, it looked as if it would offer community and yet somehow we just weren't finding community in that place. So it was a pretty lonely time. And it, and I think the gift of a season like that is you start to ask really hard questions about your life. You know, what, what do I really value? What do I really want? Um, what do I love? You know, what, uh, and, and, and we begin to pray, we begin to, pray for something new and different. And uh, the end of those prayers was Maplehurst, this, this old red brick Victorian farmhouse in Pennsylvania, which I never could have predicted. But um, I think what we learned is that we, we longed for the community that we'd had in the city, but we also longed for a more spacious place where we could have extra space for guests and space to garden. And uh, that took us here, this old farmhouse, but the farm has been sold off. So we are now surrounded by a new neighborhood of, you know, sort of typical suburban builders' homes. 
And uh, it's kind of a mix of, of two worlds. We've got good community here, but we also have um, that elbow room and space to garden, space to plant trees. And uh, it's funny how the, the answers to our prayers and the fulfillment of our dreams can sometimes be things we could have never imagined for ourselves. Well, you know, I live in a, a neighborhood with a name. I live on a street with a name, but I've never lived <laughs> in a, a home that bears a name. So tell us, uh, I guess, a little bit about the significance of, of the name of the home you live in. Yeah, you know, that's true for me as well. And uh, although I've become a bit of an evangelist for naming your house, I think, you know, our homes and our places are so important. And uh, what could be better than to give them a name that reflects the, the importance they have in our lives? But yeah, it's something, it's not really a practice we have here in, in the U.S., but we, in inheriting this house, we inherited a name. It's been called Maplehurst for at least 100 years, probably more. And the name comes uh, from all the old maple trees that are planted on the property, especially along the old driveway. Um, Gosh, and so we're, ten, we're, we're, I feel like we've been charged with caring for this old place, but along with that has come uh, the responsibility of caring for these old trees. And our trees are, they're huge and gorgeous, but they're also weak and dying. You know, maple trees don't live forever. And so there's a lot wrapped up in that name, Maplehurst. There's a lot of beauty and also for me, a lot of heartache and uh, expenses. Also, <laughs> I'm actually, we had another big limb of one of these maple trees fall down on our driveway recently. And now we're staring at another, um, you know, another payment to the, to the tree guy. So uh, taking care of places is complicated work, but I have found it to be so satisfying, like nothing else. Well, walk us through that shift a bit. I mean, the shift of uh, not just the busyness of, of a place like Chicago or Mm -hmm. Florida, but this this shift that takes place living in a, a different type of home, a different type of place, and, and maybe yeah. how that connects to your spiritual journey. Yeah, yeah, it's it's almost the same thing for me. It's funny that the spiritual journey and the geographic journey are so intertwined. I I can hardly kind of un, un, untangle those things, but I think uh, that's probably true for a lot of us if we pay attention to our own stories. You know, I think. Uh, um, you know, the city, uh, the city was where God really uh, shaped me as a neighbor through, you know, often hard experiences. He taught me, you know, what it is to really be a neighbor. And he taught me that because I was needed by my neighbors in that place, but also because I needed them. And uh, we were there for one another. And, and then losing those neighbors in Florida, I think that's why it was such a spiritual wilderness. We'd lost uh, the people who needed us. And uh, we still had needs, but there weren't people around us to meet those needs. And so all of that for me really um, just heightened, I think, my understanding of how God meets with us in communities and how, um, you know, we, if we say we want more, more of God in our life or more, we want to see more of God's glory, you know, in the world, then, um, uh, you know, I think that glory becomes visible um, in our places, the places that we share with one another. So that's really why what sent us, I think, in search of a place that we could make and tend ourselves, um, not just because we wanted to share it with others, because we knew that in sharing it with others, we would get to see God in new ways, and uh, we would get to feel his presence more powerfully, and that's been so true for us here at Maplehurst. So even though I say, you know, in a sense, this is my promised land, you know, I've been led out of the wilderness that was Florida for me, you know, with my experience 
apologies to, to anyone listening from the beautiful state of Florida, but you know, it was that wilderness for me. I've been led out and along with my family brought to this place that really functions as a, a spiritual promised land. But even here in the promised land, there's work to be done there. There's heartache, there's hardship. Um, but it's different because um, I feel rooted in this place in a way that, you know, I, I couldn't before. I think sometimes in life we're wandering and we're wandering spiritually. We're wandering maybe even geographically. And in other times we're rooted, but that doesn't mean that life is now easy. Um, but uh, it, it's a good thing to live a rooted life. And I really feel the blessing of that in this place. And it's, um, you know, when I say blessing, I can't even untangle really the, the spiritual and the material threads of it because they're so much a part of this actual ground beneath my feet. And, you know, that's one thing as a writer I feel um, called to do is just to help people really see the ground beneath their feet and think about it and look at it and think, um, why am I here? You know, God has us in particular places for, for particular reasons. And uh, I think it's important to ask why and to try to look around and and see the places we where we are with with God's own eyes um uh who you know the the possibilities i think are can just really astonish us when we begin to do that this podcast is presented to you by the center for congregational health at the center we believe god has called and empowered congregations to change the world for 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. Well, you know, we've already alienated our Texas listeners. So if you want to name, <laughs> if you want to name the specific town in you know Florida, then that'll really just push people to the, the edge. <laughs> no, don't do that. I don't want to, uh, oh my goodness! Well, you know, so if people want to, if people want to know names, and they really want the nitty gritty of the stories, so I've got this book, Placemaker, and it is not just a general how to. It's a, it's a very personal memoir of these very places so you can read all about Jacksonville Florida <laughs> oh, <Lord. laughs> yeah and you know St. Augustine too that was right down the road from us and has such a rich rich history I mean it's so funny I was really fed by that history um, I was fed by particular old uh, there was a old um, orange growing uh, homestead not far from my home it was like another world from the suburban house I was living in. And that place with its history um, just inspired me and, and fed me. And um, gosh, uh, it, there's, there's so much goodness there, but yep, it was still, it was still that wilderness place for me, despite all of that. Well, despite my 
good friends that I have living in Jacksonville, Florida. That's also the place where my parents were born and raised. And so, no, I, I completely agree really? with you. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, wow. <laughs> so you've well, got roots in that place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll move on from Jacksonville because we don't want to alienate our, our listeners. But uh, so in March, you released the second book, Placemaker, Cultivating a Place of Comfort and Beauty and Peace. And this book is a wonderful invitation to, to rethink our pace and pattern of living. Uh, so we might discover the beauty and peace of God's goodness through the earth. What, uh, I know it seems obvious, but what was going on in your life that you needed to experience and write this book? Ah, I'll tell you, this is what it was. I'm living in this old farmhouse. It's a dream come true, but the dream in a number of ways turned on me. And I began to question if we'd been right to to do this, or if we had just been crazy, if we were just fools. We we moved to this old house and a lot of work had been done on it before we bought it. And we felt called to this place. And um, it was a, it's a beautiful place. But the longer we lived in it, the more work we realized the house needed, which is often true of old, old homes. And uh, the more money was needed and time. And I felt very um, unqualified for that work. And uh, uh, certainly didn't think we you know, had the money to do the work. And so I really began to question, um, were we right in coming here? Was this just some kind of fool's errand? Is this place a, a gift or is it a money pit? And these were real questions I was asking um, as I you know, began to put together the, the, the ideas behind this book, Placemaker. And I had a sense that if I could go back and think really carefully about all the places I had lived and and um, the things that had happened there and, um, you know, the spiritual story of those places. And um, I felt like by returning to that past that I would come to some answers. So in the end, I did. And so one of the stories I'm telling in Placemaker is the story of this house and how the kind of placemaking we had done in all those other places, which was very individual and very DIY and um, very much, you know, just me and my husband on our own doing it ourselves, which I think we we glorify in this country and we certainly glorify on our, on our, you know, HDTV and, and so forth. But the thing I have learned here at Maplehurst is how much we need one another. And so the placemaking that we have been doing in this place is um, it's not DIY. It is calling in lots of helpers and we have needed um, neighbors who are experts in old homes and in this community to help us and to show us what to do uh, to help us, you know, do everything from restore the windows to repoint the bricks and teach us about historic limestone recipes and things I knew nothing about really before coming here. And uh, I feel, um, I mean, it's a, it's a real thing in my life, but it's also a metaphor for, I think, how God delights in our communities and in the ways that we rely on one another. And so, um, the placemaking that we do here now today is different. It's, um, it is more uh, communal, it's more shared, it's more about being a neighbor, and it's less about me and my gifts and my ownership, and, and um, well, it's just less about me in every way. And I think that's something else that an old house has taught me. You know, it's, it's, it has always been easier for me to feel a sense of ownership and, and of, of the other homes I've lived in, but there's something about an old house that just convinces you that you are just one in a line of people. <laughs> you are just caretaking for the next generation. There's really no getting around that fact in an old house. And um, whether we live in old houses or not, I think that's an important thing for all of us to reckon with. Now, uh, 
let's talk about placemaking itself. You wrote placemaking is a, a timely and yet timeless reminder that the cultivation of good and beautiful places is not a retreat from the real world, but a holy pursuit of the world that is more real than we know. So what exactly is a placemaker? You know, I think a placemaker is really anyone who's willing to sink their roots in deep to a place, willing to love a place, willing to care for a place, uh, even if they think they might be moving on in six months or six years. You know, not many of us stay in one place for a lifetime. Some of us do, but whether or not that's true, um, it can be painful to, to really let ourselves love a place. It can be painful to let our roots sink in, especially if we feel like we're just going to have to pull them up again. And yet I think that that kind of love is always worthwhile. I mean, it might break our hearts. It, it, it does come with risks. But I really think it's the kind of love God calls us to in the same way that, you know, we're called to love people, called to love our neighbors, even though that's a risky thing to do. I think placemakers are those who are who who kind of take that leap of faith and they really love a place and um, uh, promise to take care of it no matter what, <laughs> you know, and the ups and downs. And, uh, and I think when we do that, uh, then we are, we're, we're preparing the ground quite literally for God's glory to dwell in our midst. And, um, and that's why I say that, that love for place is just always worthwhile. Now the, the book is, um, kind of written around the themes of, of trees and plants and including uh, saucer magnolia and honey locust and roses. What was, um, what was the most challenging chapter to, to contemplate and to write? Oh, yeah. And, you know, the trees, gosh, I loved writing about all those tree stories. And I hope that'll be, um, uh, you know, I think that is one of the gifts I wanted to give my reader were all those just fascinating stories of these rooted um, this, you know, these rooted beings that, that God has made, these trees that we're told are clapping their hands and praising God. But the most challenging chapter, I think, um, you know, it's easy to ask the questions. It's easy to, to tell these fascinating tree stories. But I was really challenged when I started to learn more about trees and realize that, um, as gardeners and caretakers in this world, we are often doing things exactly wrong. <laughs> the more we learn about trees, the more we realize that they're so often better off without us. Uh, you know, I learned, for instance, that while it's easy to think in a forest, we might manage a forest by cutting down some of the trees and giving the other trees more access to sunlight or water. Actually, we're discovering that all those root systems are connected. And when you injure one tree, you're injuring the whole forest. And so realizing that, um, you know, the ways we kind of manage and, and care for um, the world around us are often so ignorant, you know, and, and, and just uh, wrong was really humbling for me. And I, I, as I'm writing this book, I'm thinking, Lord, I thought it when I set out that I was going to encourage people to do this work, to, to take care of the earth around them, to take care of their communities. And I'm discovering just how much, how easily we screw that up. And that was, a uh, struggle for me. I started to question the whole premise, like maybe, goodness, maybe the trees are better off without us, you know, maybe nature is better off without our interference. Um, but where I landed is that, you know, nature is a grand thing, but a garden is a humble space. I mean, a garden does reveal our mistakes and our limitations as humans, but a garden, um, 
it's uh it's it's built and made on a human scale and god meets with us on a human scale i think that's what um christ coming to earth uh, is all about you know he sort of made himself small in a way and and came to to meet with us and i think we can still meet with christ in gardens or beneath the shade of a tree if we're willing to to make gardens and plant trees and so even though we do it imperfectly even though i know and now i know from revisiting my past all the mistakes i've made as a placemaker it is still worth doing because it is the work that god invites us into it's a way of i think participating in his own um, creative uh, energies in, in in the world as our creator and so we're invited in, into that but i think it's best to to say yes to that invitation with humility, knowing, okay, I don't really have what it takes. I don't know always what's right to do. I don't know what would be the best tree to plant in my front yard, but I'm willing to try. I'm willing to dig in and see what happens. And and I think that, that God blesses that willingness. Um, but man, just writing the book and asking those questions is a real journey of discovery for me and um, and humbling, very humbling. One of my favorite chapters was the Saucer Magnolia chapter, and you wrote, mm. the places we call home sometimes need protection from our inexperience and our selfishness. The places we call home are almost always enriched to the extent they are shared. Is it possible to care for a place with open hands, always ready to give it away like so many fishes and loaves? Take us a little deeper there. Yeah, you know... One thing I've learned is I've lived in many different places and uh, had many different neighbors <laughs> is um, just how foolish I am when I call any little bit of earth mine. <laughs> you know, I mean, of course, the old house has taught me that, but living as a renter for many years taught me that. And I think uh, for a long time, I thought that that I didn't have maybe the right to change a place or I, I couldn't really take care of a place unless it was mine. I think there's this idea in our, our culture and our country that, you know, we take care of a place if it makes financial sense and, and if it makes practical sense. And usually that's only true if we're the owners, if our name is on the deed. But what I've come to learn is that we're called to care for places, even if it makes no practical sense. And even if our name isn't on some legal piece of paper. So I think um, placemakers are often renting. They're often sharing a community garden in a city. Um, they're the ones who maybe don't own the land, but they're picking up the garbage off that empty lot. They're the ones who are sharing their home with, um, you know, uh, visitors. They're the ones who are welcoming refugees into their community. I mean, there are so many ways to do this, but I think that's what real placemaking and real caretaking look like um, they don't it doesn't look so much like putting up fences and keeping other people out it looks like setting another place at the table um, it looks like even today actually I, I shut the window before we had this conversation because I thought gosh there might be some noisy kids in my yard because all our neighbors know that their kids have full permission to to come and play under our trees and sometimes when I'm working I resent that noise and then I remind myself no those trees don't belong to me. <laughs> and if those kids want to play under them, then they are welcome to do that. But I have to kind of keep reminding myself of those choices. 
Well, just know that my interview with Peter ends, he had a, a concrete breaker right outside his window the whole time and birds chirping. So I think it would have been perfectly fine with my end. Ah, uh, <laughs> a little kid noise in the background. <laughs> we live, um, we live in the busiest culture that's ever walked the face of the earth. Uh, a recent mm. study found that the average person uses 130% of their waking hours. And what they're accounting for is, uh, and that extra 30% is the fact that we're always uh, seem to be multitasking. Mm. So I don't, I don't ask this question to be cynical. Um, but not everyone will be able to live in the extraordinary way that, that you have been able to in this last decade. Mm-hmm. So how might people discover this in the busyness of suburbia and urban life? Hmm. You know, yeah, it's such a good question. And I think, I think it is why I've enjoyed living in these places with the four seasons and sort of slowing down to that rhythm, the way that, you know, winter asks us to live at a different pace than spring and summer at a different pace again. Um, I think of myself now in spring as in the busy season, I'm out there planting my garden and, and there is a bit of rush, but it's, it's a good rush because I won't always be rushing in that way. And I think wherever we live, um, and this is true um, if we're in, you know, an apartment or a suburban house um, or, a, or a farmhouse in the country, we are still in the natural world. Um, we are pretty good as humans at, you know, cutting ourselves off from it, but we are still in it, you know, whether there's a park down the road or the weather overhead, we're still in it. And I think as children of God, um, it's important for all of us to be paying attention to those natural rhythms and those cues, to be noticing always, you know, when is the sun coming up? When is it setting? Uh, You know, when is the full moon? Um, What is the name of that tree planted down the block? You know, just paying attention to nature. And um, I think when we do that, there is a, um, there really is a kind of natural slowing down. It's hard to listen to bird song. It's hard to um, plant in the garden and do a hundred other things at the same time. I think especially when we do, when I do the dirty work of gardening, you know, so whether we're, you know, tending our house plant or, or growing a vegetable garden, dirt on our hands, um, paying attention to the weather, these things sort of reset our clocks or remind us of some kind of deeper rhythm that we're supposed to be connected to. I think as Christians, we you know, maybe we intuitively, theologically know this is true. You know, we, we value Sabbath rest, or we at least know we're supposed to. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think uh, paying attention to nature and the way that nature rests, you know, every night and every winter um, is uh, just one more way of reminding ourselves of these deeper truths. And I think, too, it's important that we remember that, um, that you know, that we're created by God the way the trees are created. We aren't some sort of separate uh, we aren't many gods, you know, and we need rest the way the trees need rest and the way animals need rest. You know, we're creatures also, even if we are created in, in the image of God. And so I hope, you know, in all my writing, as I write about nature and the inspiration I find in the trees and the gardens, I really do that because I think that that inspiration matters um, for everybody, no matter the places we live. And and I have found it in many different places. So I think it's there for each of us. Um, even if we haven't seen it, even if we're not good at acknowledging it, acknowledging it. Um, and sometimes it just means stepping away from the computer, putting down that phone and, and going for a walk and, and seeing what is happening in the real world out here. But we can all do it. I think we all have access to it in some way. 
As you think about um, those reading this book, how, how do you see local faith communities using this book? Mm, you know, so I, um, you know, I don't write about this specifically, but I think the concept of placemaking is such a spacious one. I could imagine people writing all kinds of stories within it. So, you know, I could imagine those who care for churches, for instance, for church buildings. I, I hope they would be inspired by the idea of placemaking to think about the beauty of their church spaces, the beauty of our shared worship spaces. I mean, that's something that has been important for, you know, uh, the Christian church for you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years, but maybe we've lost touch with that a little bit or the importance of that. And uh, especially maybe in our American Protestant churches, the importance of beauty, um, of sacred spaces and caring for them. So, um, you know, even though it's not something I have a lot of, you know, a lot to say about directly, gosh, I would love to think that um, people might be inspired in, in, in their, um, in the physical spaces that they share as churches and how they care for them and how they share them. I know there's a church in, in my community that I am not a part of, but I drive by it and I see that they have a, a really big uh, community garden out behind the church. And I love to kind of just glance over and see what they're doing back there. And I love to think of them sharing that harvest and, you know, uh, so maybe it's something like that, or maybe it's supporting the artists in their midst and commissioning work from them to hang on the walls. It could look like so many things, um, but I think beauty and place are important, not just for our homes, but for our, um, our churches and our worship spaces. What's your deepest takeaway from, from writing this book? Hmm. You know, for me personally, it's been how much beauty matters. I think that's something that I've always been drawn to, but it's hard or has been hard for me in the past to maybe justify <laughs> theologically. I've always thought, well, maybe it's just an extra, maybe it's an extravagance, maybe it's an indulgence. Um, but writing this book and, and telling the stories of these trees and these flowers and of God's creation and all the places I've lived really hammered home for me. No, beauty is one of the languages of God. It is one of the most important ways that he reveals himself to us. It's important to learn to to um, re receive what he speaks through beauty. And also, it's important to learn how to use that language to create beauty on our own. So I feel like I, I have a confidence in um, the importance of beauty and in my own um, attraction to beauty like almost like a grounding in it that I didn't have before. And, uh, um, and, and you know, that makes all the difference. It means I, I give it more priority in my life that I think it deserves to have than, than I did before. Beauty, uh, like love, it really matters. It's always worth it. I'm sure you have a, a lot of uh, things you hope for readers to gain, but what would you say is, is your greatest hope for the book and for your readers? Uh, you know, I think as a writer, the thing that I give, the thing that I hope to do is to lend my eyes to my reader for a while. So, you know, as a writer of nonfiction, I'm a noticer, I'm an observer, uh, I have my own lens, you know, my own way of seeing the world. And um, I think in writing any book and in writing this book in particular, what I'm doing is I'm saying here, you know, take this book and, and in a sense, take my eyes for a while, almost like a putting on a pair of eyeglasses, you know, and see the world through my eyes for a while. And, uh, and then I hope when you turn that last page and you sort of set my lens down, 
you um, are able to look at your own world in some fresh new way. You're able to see your own home or your own church, or your own community um, with, uh, with fresh eyes and see the beauty and how much it matters. Maybe see um, some, something broken or ugly around you that is just crying out for you to care for it. So, yeah, it really is, I think, um, and, you know, all books function in this way, but I really um, uh, prioritize this as a writer or understand, you know, my calling as a writer in this way that I'm, I'm uh, sharing my eyes for a while. And, um, yeah, so I, I really hope it's not so much that I'm inviting readers into my own story, but I hope I'm giving them new eyes to see their own story and to see their own places, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the book came out in March. Uh, what's what's next for you? So I the book came out just in time for me to dive back into my garden, which has been so satisfying. It was good to have that book work to do over winter, which is always a quieter, slower time for me anyhow. And so I've been spending a lot of time in the garden. And um, as I've been doing that, I've, I've just been reminded of how, um, you know, it's, it's I think some people um, will think about placemaking and it'll, it'll be purely maybe spiritual for them. It'll give them, you know, maybe new uh, theological grounding or, um, you know, a new spiritual insight. But I think there might be some readers who actually want now to plant some seeds or grow some roses or plant a tree. And um, often I get questions from, uh, you know, people who follow me online or people familiar with my writing about, you know, where do I begin? Do you have gardening books to recommend or tips to recommend? And so actually I am thinking of moving in and, and writing a book or maybe a series of books that um, combine not only my kind of spiritual reflections about um, the natural world and gardening, but combining that with real practical steps, you know, what to do. So yeah, I'm currently putting together a proposal for, um, uh, what might be a, a color, kind of full color um, gardening gift book uh, type endeavor. So very different than anything I've done before, but I'm so excited about this possibility of like actually practically being able to help people um, cultivate their spaces and uh, cultivate beauty, which is so important to me. You know, I also, I think too, there's a lot out there on growing vegetables. You know, maybe some of us are okay with gardening if it's practical and useful. And of course, you know, growing your own food is super practical, but um, maybe there's less out there for those of us who just want to be a little foolish and grow flowers. <laughs> so first off, I, I hope to uh, write something practical to encourage more people to just grow beauty and grow flowers. So yeah, I think that's, that's what I'm moving into next. Hmm. And I have that's to say, I never imagined that when I was in graduate school all those years. <laughs> <Never>. <laughs> <laughs> Life is full of surprises. <laughs> yeah. You know, getting a PhD in English literature, uh, you know, it, it comes, uh, you know, a journey comes as you expect. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> never expect exactly. these things to come out of this. So, uh, it's true. Yeah. And, you know, just thinking of our stories and how they surprise us. I think if you told me back then what I'd be doing today, honestly, I think I would have been horrified. I think I would have been afraid or disappointed. You know, these, these I, you know, I wouldn't have recognized these, these dreams. Um, I had very different plans in mind, but from this vantage point, looking back, I often just say, ah, oh, thank you, God, for leading me in the way you have, because this is a, a satisfying life, even if it's not the life I dreamed of. Hmm. 
Well, for those that want to follow Christy, of course, she's on uh, all different sorts of social media platforms. You can visit her website, christypurefoy.com and go out and purchase Placemaker wherever books are sold. Uh, Christy, thank you for inviting us to reconsider our pace and pattern so that we might enjoy the beauty and richness and peace of God's earth. Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure to talk. I appreciate the invitation so much. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.